Well, if you would, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we'll be looking at chapter 7, verses 10 through 16 this Lord's Day morning. Now, some of you may have grown up in the church, and I'm not really one of those. I intermittently went to church, but didn't really grow up in the church. But for those of you who have grown up in the church, you know, perhaps passages like ours this morning might be one of those passages that you're rather familiar with. Or maybe it's just the opposite. It might be that this passage is one of those passages that you've really kind of avoided like the plague, you know? Like, let me stay away from this passage because it has some serious ramifications for my life. So why do I say that, though? Why do I say we might be tempted or we may have even avoided this passage like the plague? Well, because it's a hard passage. And not just that, but it does very directly and immediately relate to our lives. You know, if we see the gospel and Christ as some ethereal thing, you know, like for the heavenlies, you know what I mean? Like, that's where Christ is and that's where he needs to stay. But when it comes to my life, you know, that's a whole different thing. And so if we, if we see Christ that way, like for the heavenlies, then when scripture directly comes into contact with our lives on difficult issues like the one we're going to see this morning, I mean, we just break down. This is too much. Uh, we might tell ourselves, you know, well, the gospel isn't meant to go that far. You know, I mean, it can go far, but not right there. You know, it's not meant to touch on that thing right there. Well, as we've been seeing, that's just the thing. The gospel really is meant to go that far. It is intended to touch our lives, to touch our marriages, to touch our homes, and to touch everything. Not one square inch of your life untouched by the gospel. And so we're right to come to this passage. Even with all that said, we're right to come to this passage with a great deal of sensitivity to these things as well. And a great deal of humility also. And so sensitivity and humility were to come in that manner, but we are to come. And so we must pick up God's word, not simply let it be something that we have over here, like not really for my life, but we must pick it up and put it on, as hard as that may be. And we are to be clothed with Christ. If you know Christ this morning, he is to be your garment everywhere you go. And so it is then that we come to this passage, to our text this morning on marriage, an unbelieving spouse, and divorce. So let's look here then, beginning with verse 10. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. And even as we just sang, 
May God show us Christ in and through it all. First Corinthians chapter seven, verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Amen. Now already, Paul has, as we have walked, if you've been through here, if you've read 1 Corinthians, from 1 Corinthians 1 through 6, chapters 1 through 6, Paul has already rather directly addressed some hard issues. So this is not the first time that he's come to hard issues within the church of Corinth. So just think back of all that we've seen or all that we have, you could see if you go back and read 1 Corinthians 1, chapters 1 through 6. So he addressed divisions. How many times is that easy? <laughs> right? Not easy. He addressed spiritual pride. And that certainly is not easy. And how often it hides right in the thick of our churches. He addressed sexual immorality. And he even addressed lawsuits among believers. However, with our chapter here this morning, chapter 7, as we saw last time, his writing has turned. And now he's writing a more pastoral kind of tone as he addresses the church of Corinth. Yet, even with that being the case, maybe you've not just seen this as we've walked through, but you've felt this. He's also gotten increasingly specific and maybe in ways that are not especially keeping us within our comfort zones. Like, Paul, come on. You're starting to really get down to the details here. I don't know if I like that. And so we may be feeling that as we come to this passage, and not just this one, but as he goes on throughout the rest of 1 Corinthians. And so last week, so for example, he touched on some issues that are really hardly addressed today within the church. Now, some are addressing them. So don't hear me say that no one's preaching on these things. They are, and there's many. But many aren't. And let me just say this, even throughout history, many have not addressed these issues. 
And what was he addressing last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 9? Well, in our hyper-sexualized age, he addressed marriage and sex within marriage. He addressed singleness and the call to serve Christ in all these things. And how deeply we saw we need to hear that church. Like, everyone needs to hear that right now. Believers need to hear that in our hyper-sexualized age. I mean, how quickly are our children going to already be hearing about these things? And as we said last week, woe to us if we as the church don't preach and teach God's word on these things. Amen. And so specific. He was honing in on these things. Now, he, as he's done all that, it's had this undercurrent of chapter 6, verse 19 through 20. And even as our passage right here to this morning will have this same undercurrent. And so you'll remember that it says there in chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And so that has been the undercurrent of chapter 7 so far. And it still is the undercurrent as we come to these verses here. But along with that, so that's one undercurrent. If you want to kind of see that flowing right underneath all of our verses here. There's another one also. And it's the created order. God's created order. As in, God is the one who created marriage. He created the marriage covenant between a man and a woman. God did that. Not us. It wasn't like, oh, hey, maybe let's just do something that might be kind of interesting. Let's just try this. No, it was God who did that. Genesis 2, 18-25. And so marriage is good, and it's sacred before God. Amen. However, here is where we get to our passage, and to our first point this morning, if you have your notes there. And it's this first point, to marriage and struggling believers. Marriage and struggling believers. So Paul is clearly addressing marriage between believers here in these first verses, verses 10 through 12. So two people who know and love Jesus Christ. That's who he's addressing. Now as we read this, he's setting his point before the wife first. Now we don't know all the various points of why that might be, but it indicates that it was probably a wife who was bringing up this issue of divorce, probably wanting to divorce her husband for some reason or another, which we aren't exactly given here. Now, just that by itself, if we're talking like within a Jewish culture, and that's not really the culture we have in Corinth, but if we're talking about within a Jewish culture, that is already an odd situation where divorce was usually initiated by men and not the women. But that wasn't really this context. So there in Corinth, 
within Roman culture, both the husband and wife were to be agreed. As in, they both were to be agreed, like, let's stay married. (laughs) Let's stay married, we're good with this, let's continue with this. However, if they were not agreed, then they could simply tell their spouse, hey, you know what, get out of here. (laughs) Why don't you just go, leave. And so they could do that, and that's it, divorced. Or along those same lines, they could just say, all right, you're not going, I'm going. (laughs) And in leaving, divorced. And so you see, I mean, divorce was rather easy. I mean, they just, I don't want to be married to anymore. All right, well, it's done. And so it is that Paul, he's giving the instructions on this here. And he's giving these instructions as a charge from the Lord. As a charge from the Lord. Now what does he mean by that? By verse 10, not I, but the Lord. Well, basically he's saying something very simple. He's saying what he's about to say is what Jesus taught. As in, it's from the Lord, Jesus. Like Jesus taught on these things. And we actually can go back and look at this in the Gospels, right? And where Jesus taught on marriage and divorce. So I'm just going to list these. So if you want to go back, you can. We're not going to walk through all these because if we did, we would be here, well, for the rest of the time. And not just that, we'd probably be into the evening. So I'm just going to list them for you. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 through 32. Matthew 19, like read a moment ago. 3 through 9, Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, and Luke 16, 18. Luke chapter 16, verse 18. Now, like I said, we won't have time to go through all those passages where Jesus taught on this, but the emphasis that Paul is picking up on from Jesus' teachings is the created order That's why it's not just like fancy language up here as the preacher, you know, or whatever, like saying created order. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm talking about God made marriage, his idea, right? And so Jesus picks up on that in the passage that Mike read from a moment ago in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, where Jesus, and I'll repeat it for us, where Jesus, he said in Matthew 19, 4 through 6, have you not read? That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, there's a lot going on just in that context with the Pharisees and their schools of views on divorce. But even as we see from Matthew 19, Jesus does allow divorce in the case of adultery. But apart from that, he gives no other basis for divorce. Like, he doesn't really say there's any other point where divorce is allowed. And so it's those teachings on marriage, on the created order, and the permanence of marriage that Paul is now picking up here in our verses. This is the teaching of the Lord. Hence he writes, 
verse 10, verse 11, kind of combined. The wife should not separate from her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. And so mindful of Jesus' teachings, Paul is saying, if you're married as a believer, you are to be oriented and aimed towards your marriage, not divorce. So this is in your notes. Be oriented and aimed towards your marriage, not divorce. Now, as we come to these verses, we must say something here. And we can get this all jumbled up. Marriage is not the problem. Sin is. The world will say, you see, marriage is a failure. (laughs) Right? We hear that everywhere. We're not going to do this. We're going to do our own thing. Well, the problem with marriage is not marriage. It's us. God's created order in creating marriage is good. Marriage is good. But we're the sinners. And this is why divorce exists. It's not a deficiency in God's created order. It's us. And this is part of why we wrestle with all this. And why it's so hard to talk about this in the church too, right? Because we must admit something that we're not perfect. And so often our marriages aren't either. Right? I mean, I don't know any one of us that would really, for being honest, would raise our hand and say, my marriage is perfect. Like we never fight or anything. And if you don't fight, that means there's probably something wrong with that. Like you're not talking to each other honestly. Like you're still probably wearing a mask rather than talking to each other as you are. And so none of us come to this passage like, I've got it all together. And if we do that, what did Paul address earlier? Spiritual pride. (laughs) So none of us can come to this passage thinking, well, look at us. Look at our marriage. Look how great we are. Because really the truth is, all of us need the grace of God in Christ in everything, including our marriages. And so we come not perfect. Also, to add to all of this, we have this weight of the weakening of marriage over years and years and years within our culture, right? I mean, like the corrosive effects of water, I mean, little by little, the beauty and the goodness and the robust nature of marriage, it has been eaten away such that when you come to a passage like this, I mean, it just causes us to go, what? I mean, there is, I've not been hearing this in churches. They've stayed away from this passage. And then marriage all around me doesn't even matter. And so when we come to this passage, we just get like, what? Like bristle up, you know? I mean, what's going on? And so we just need to be aware of that. Like if you're feeling that this morning, there's a lot of history behind why you feel that way. There's a whole culture around you that says marriage does not matter. And so, this just seems like, Paul, you're just being mean. But that's not the case. And it's not Paul. It is Paul. But it's God. And this is his word. 
Amen. Now, interesting, or interestingly, our culture's view is somewhat similar to how the Corinthians viewed marriage as well. Right now, I mean, our culture's view right now. Divorces were very common back then, right? Yet even so, like back then and and today, they're very common too. So you see how they overlap. Yet even so, in their culture, and we could just look at our culture and say, oh yeah, it's common too. So, So at the same time, so then, even so, we have Paul's words here. Even as he looks out and he sees divorce everywhere, he doesn't say, well, no, I'm not going to say anything. He says, well, I have to say something. And so that's why we're here this morning, too, is to hear the word. And so as we read Paul's words here, let that be your disposition, oriented and aimed towards marriage as beautiful as good and as right. So how might we do that in view of what Paul says here? Well, Paul, he gives two points along these lines. So first, he says, remain married or remain unmarried. Verses 10 through 12. So in other words, divorce for believers in their minds and hearts really should not be an option. Now, as you hear me say that, I have not gone crazy up here. Okay? I realize all kinds of struggles happen in marriages and so on. But as we come out from Scripture, not out from culture, out from Scripture, we have this whole mindset and sense and thrust that divorce really should not be in our heads, in our minds and hearts. And I also haven't forgotten, and you might be thinking this, I have not forgotten what Jesus said either. He permitted divorce. Now, did you hear what I said? He permitted divorce in the case of adultery. He did not say pursue after divorce in the case of adultery. There's a difference. And so the thrust of Jesus' teachings and Paul's here is essentially a call for married believers as far as they are able. And I have friends who have had this happen to them too, where they, their spouse has committed adultery and they did everything they possibly could to make things right and they would not have it. And so they got a divorce. So as far as you are able, you are to take divorce off the table as believers, like it's out of your heart and mind. And what I mean by that, it's not something that you just simply throw around. Where you say, oh yeah? Well, I want a divorce, you know? And every week, that's what you say to each other, you know? I want a divorce. I'm saying, take that off the table. That those words never come out of your mouth. And so to summarize what Paul is saying... And hear me here. I mean, there are a lot of caveats. And if we wanted to follow all the caveats and follow all the things that we need to work through specific issues and contexts, we would never get through this passage. And so there are things we wrestle with. But to summarize what Paul is saying in verses 10 through 12, wives and husbands should not divorce, 
But if they do, they are to remain unmarried. Another shocker, right? Now the presupposition behind what I mean by that, what's going on behind his thought and his point here, behind Paul's and Jesus' teachings in the Gospels, is that in the sight of God, when a believers they divorce, they are still married in God's sight. That's why when Jesus says, like, why we're marrying at that point would be adultery. Like, if you remarry, the man remarries, the woman remarries, he says, you go to those passages, he says, then they commit adultery. It's because it's in his sight, in God's sight, they're still married. And so Paul's following the same logic here. So verse 11, if she does, she gets divorced, she should remain unmarried. And you can just add he in there. If he does... He gets divorced, he should remain unmarried, verse 11, right? Which is what Paul says too, applying to both of them. So remain married or remain unmarried. A second point he makes here is pursue reconciliation. Pursue reconciliation. So verse 11, but if she does, gets a divorce, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And you can just add the he in there. Or else he should be recon- or be reconciled to his wife. So part of the purpose in not remarrying is a hope for reconciliation. So in other words, believers are to fight for their marriages. Now, in that too, I just so many like caveats here. Now, this does not mean fighting against each other, like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm just going to keep like, going at this thing until you say yes. That's not what this means. So don't take that from this like fight for your marriage. That's not what I mean. That's not what Paul's after. He's talking about pursue reconciliation, pursue making things right with one another. Nor does it mean that they're to fight for marriage alone that they're to fight for their marriage alone. Friends, America, American individualism has hurt us more than we know. Where we just privatize our lives and we privatize our marriages and more. Friends, you need to know that you're not alone as you face these struggles. You're not alone in that you face them and I face them too. You're not alone in that you, Christ has given you his church. You're not alone to walk through life and all this world and work and anything. You're not alone to do that by yourself, nor are you to do it alone. Now, I know that might be scary because I know all of us are different. But isn't that exactly the way that Jesus made it to be? That we would rely less on ourselves and rely more on him. And what does that require? Faith. Faith in what God says and faith in his word. 
So it might be scary, but seek out other godly couples in your struggles. Godly counsel, biblical counsel. You know, I would argue this is part of why you need godly friendships within the church, even right now, like right now, before you ever face those big struggles, like you don't know how to get over them. Before you ever get to those points, you have people here that you are friends with where they know you and you know them, relationships with other couples like that. And you can just be honest with them and they can be honest with you. I mean, it's not just you're always sharing struggles, but you can laugh together. You can go have fun together. You can vacation together. You can do all these things together. But then when these things come, you are not alone. We just don't just have this pattern of doing everything by yourself right in accord with American individualism. But you have someone that you can go to. Now, as I say that, I'm not talking about having someone to go to to complain about your spouse. <laughs> right? Oh, man, you can't believe, man, you know what she did? You know, that, that's not what I'm doing. You know what he did? You know, and kind of telling, you know, all these things about your spouse and just totally running them in the dirt. That's not what this is about either. This isn't about finding a couple that you can complain to about your spouse. But it's when the struggles come, you have someone to go to, a couple that you both can seek out. And it's not weird to talk about struggles, which I think it's become weird for many churches to talk about their struggles because they just haven't done it. And so we have these big falls, pastors falling, people in congregations, members, in churches for 20, 30, 40 years, and you just see, we never saw it coming. It seemed like they were, everything was going just fine. And it's not even just marriage, it's all a variety of things. We've got to get back to the word in these things. Amen. We need each other, brothers, sisters. We can't do it alone. Now in all this, See how you're to embrace a gospel vigor in your marriage. Embrace a gospel vigor in your marriage. So the heartbeat of your pursuit of reconciliation, of fighting for your marriage, of a robust view of marriage, is what? American gusto? Is that what it is? (laughs) No. It's God's pursuit of us in Christ. There is your reason. You know, as Paul, he tells us in Ephesians 5, 25 through 33, you can go back and look at that at home as well. So Ephesians 5, 25 through 33, marriage is ultimately about, this is why God created marriage, is about Christ and his church. That's what it's about. That's what your marriage is to exemplify. That's what it's to be imaging, what God created marriage to image. And so what does that mean? Well, that means embracing a gospel vigor in your marriage means laying down your life for your spouse, taking up the cross, glorifying God in your body by pursuing reconciliation in every way possible, even 
in the cases of great sin, even in cases of adultery among believers. And really, we have the whole Bible to say that point. Like God pursued after adulterers, right? You know, I can't help but think of Hosea, the prophet. I mean, he took Gomer to be his wife in accord with what God told him to do. And man, she was just so deeply unfaithful to him. I can't imagine what Hosea was thinking and feeling. I mean, just over and over again, heartbreak. Even, you know, with God telling him to do this. And yet God tells him, you know what? Keep pursuing after her. Keep going. Go after her again. And he did. And why did he do that? Well, because God told him to. But this is how, this was an image of how God kept pursuing adulterous Israel. Over and over again. Adultery among the nations. And here's God again, pursuing after them. And truly, friends, it's how God has pursued you. That's why you're here right now. So in view of the gospel, we need to remember all of us are by nature spiritual adulterers against God. Every single sin. And so in that, see what kind of gospel vigor you're called to as well. And yes, I know it will be hard. Yes, you will grieve. You will have to wrestle. Yes, it won't be easy, but yes, don't give up. By the grace of God. And if and only then, no reconciliation is in sight. Trust the Lord and take up the words here. As hard as they may be, remaining unmarried even for the glory of God in your singleness. And if you remember last week, Paul said, you know what? Singleness really isn't that bad. (laughs) Right? He's like, this is the better thing. I know you guys want to get out there and get married, but this is better. Not godlier, so you get that right. But Paul is saying, you're really, you're blessed in being single too. So if that means taking up your cross and doing that, then do it. Now, we might wish that Paul would stop at this point, or maybe that I would stop at this point, but he has more to say. And so next he turns and addresses marriage and an unbelieving spouse. So point two, marriage and an unbelieving spouse. So that was believers he was talking to. Now he's talking to about marriage and an unbelieving spouse. So verses 13 through 16. So now in the church of Corinth, some of them had become believers. So they didn't become believers in the church of Corinth. They become believers unto being members within the church of Corinth. And so they became believers, but their spouses were still unbelievers. They didn't come to faith in Christ. And so this is the context that's going on. In the midst of the gospel going out, they come to faith, but their spouse over here doesn't come to faith. 
And so as Paul says all this, now hear me, he's not saying it's okay for believers to marry unbelievers. He's not saying that. He's answering a concern here. Since one spouse is a believer and the other isn't, now what? You know, what are they to do? You know, were they to get a divorce? I mean, they don't know, they don't know the Lord. I mean, should they leave their marriage as the Israelites did, right? Like in the book of Ezra, should they do that? Like put off the unbelievers, the Gentiles? Is that what they need to do? Do you see how this is a question? And it's not a small question. I mean, we see it in the Old Testament even. And so Paul's answer to that is no. He says, remain married. Remain married. The point in your outline there, remain married. So verses 12 through 13. And so he begins similar to before, except in the opposite direction. So this is instruction from him. So it says there, not the Lord. Now what is in the world? What in the world does he mean by that, right? And so by that, he means this wasn't something that Jesus taught directly. He's not saying what he's saying. All right, guys, Jesus didn't say this. Just ignore what I'm saying ahead. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this is new. Jesus did not teach on this. So here, I'm telling you, spirit-inspired direction in view of new covenant prerogatives. That's what Paul's doing. He's not not like, oh, I close your Bibles. This isn't the Lord. No, he's referring back, well, Jesus himself did not specifically teach on this. And so under the inspiration of the Spirit, he instructs the Corinthian believers, if the unbelieving spouse is willing to remain married, remain married. Pretty simple. So in other words, just because they're not a believer doesn't mean they should get divorced. Now he gives a few reasons here also for this. So first, they're to remain married in view of a gospel holiness in view of a gospel holiness. So he says there in verse 14, for the unbelieving spouse is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. And so the presence of the believer in the marriage before their spouse and their children, he's saying it is a good thing. They are being, like Paul has mentioned and is in the theme of 1 Corinthians, they're being holy in the midst of an unholy world. They're being holy in the midst of an unholy spouse. And so a gospel holiness. And then second, they're to remain married in view of a gospel influence. A gospel influence. So similar to the first point, The believing spouse has a godly influence on their spouse and on their children. And it may well be that their spouse or their children will come to faith in Christ. Like through their witness, through their uh, witness and their evangelism and their sharing of Christ. And they're living for Christ. And so the believer's presence might be the only witness their spouse might ever have for the gospel which is especially true in Corinth, which is especially true in other countries all around us right now who are facing things exactly like this. But what if they, the unbelieving spouse, 
wants a divorce. Well, Paul, he says a few things here too. So first, if an unbelieving spouse wants a divorce, simple, grant them the divorce. Simple, but not simple. The point is simple to understand, but the reality, it's heart-wrenching. If they want a divorce, you give it to them. Now, as an aside, but not an aside, I think we, could be, we would be right to fit abuse under this category as well. Now, there's more that we could say about abuse. Even as I've said, there's more that we could say about a lot of things this morning. But I want you to know that abuse is not one of those points where you need to think, I must stay married and keep getting beaten. A spouse who abuses their spouse is putting themselves in the place of an unbelieving spouse. They're deserting the good of their spouse. They're pushing them out. Even violating the very nature of the one flesh union by seeking to destroy the person that they're united to. They're not identifying themselves with the cross. But with all sorts of other things. And all those other things are really them. They are God and there is no other. And so, no to abuse. That doesn't mean you just run immediately either. But Paul, he says here, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Verse 15. Now, there are different views here, but I take this to mean, and you can look those views up, They would take a long time to go through this morning as well, but I take this to mean you are free to divorce your unbelieving spouse and not remarry. However, later in this chapter, chapter 7, verse 39, if your spouse dies, then you're not bound, as in free to remarry. That doesn't mean you go and like, murder your spouse either you know so that's not what this is calling you to do i know how we work sometimes well like if i can't find that way i'm gonna do this you know well that's not what paul is recommending now as you hear all this paul he's not saying that this is easy it may it may look that way because the verses here are only a few with 10 through 16 and he covers all these massive implications for our lives He's not being cavalier about these things, but he's applying the gospel to life, to real life, to your life, to this church, and to us. And so he's coming with a pastoral heart. And this is why, second, if an unbelieving spouse wants to divorce, we're told to give them what they want, and we're to aim at Christ-centered peace. So if an unbelieving spouse wants to divorce, aim at Christ-centered peace. So we're not to keep fighting them on this. The unbelieving spouse. And as you hear this too, there's there's an evangelistic 
impulse behind this, an impulse that longs for your spouse to come to faith in Christ. This is why Paul, he says in verse 16 here, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So essentially, what he's saying there is he's saying, dear believer, it's not ultimately up to you to save them. Leave it to God. Hope in God. And so he ends on this positive note here. If your spouse wants a divorce, your unbelieving spouse wants a divorce, and, or they desert you and leave you, let your hope be in God. Amen. Now, as you've seen, I mean, this passage is not easy. I hope every one of us sees that. And hopefully I haven't been unfaithful in making it clear that this is difficult. This is real people in real life that are going to be walking through these things. And so there are some difficult issues here. And I would imagine it hasn't just addressed one or two of you in this room, right? But all of us. I mean, some of you may have been divorced or others of you, like me, may have been impacted by divorce. Right? Like in your family, you know that's exactly what you've seen over and over again. I've seen that. My own parents. So everyone in this room. Yet as we come to these words, friends, what you need to see is you need to see Christ in them. Hear the Spirit of God in them. We're not to come away from this passage with hearts filled with axes and pitchforks, but we're to come with hearts full of the grace of God, full of compassion, full of love, full of the gospel. Didn't we not just sing a moment ago as we were coming to hear this passage preached, show us Christ. O God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word until every heart confesses Christ is Lord. Well, so also here this morning, you didn't sing those words for another sermon. You sang those words for this sermon. So in all things, let it be unto Christ and the gospel of Christ. In all things, let it be unto Christ and the gospel of Christ. And so maybe these verses have been hard for you this morning. Maybe they've encouraged you, or maybe they've convicted you, or something else. But in them, friends, don't miss where you are to turn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. If you're divorced here, turn your eyes upon Jesus. If you're married here, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. If you're struggling here, turn your eyes upon Jesus. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, turn your eyes upon Jesus. And so hear his words this morning, not in shame, not as a aimed at shaming you, but as mercy and as God's mercy. 
as the Lord saying to one and to every single one of us, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we come in view of hearts and minds and lives and histories of our lives and histories of our families, the history of churches and people real people, real struggles. And Lord, we come and bring those to you this morning. And we just say, Lord, for each one of those, you know every person here and you know what kind of things they've been through in their lives. We pray that you would help your word to to lead them, to work in them, and that Jesus, you would be with them even now and helping them, Lord as they walk through this, or as they have walked through divorce, or as they have walked through struggles in their marriage, or as they have divorced an unbelieving spouse, Lord, be with each person here this morning. You know the hurt is real. You know the pain is real. You know the difficulty. And it's not like you you don't know and you haven't even done everything to bring us to what is good. You sent your son to come and to bear your wrath, to take the curses that we deserve, to suffer, to be beaten, and to be nailed to a cross, to die, and to be buried, and to rise again for us. Lord, how you have pursued us, and how you show us even now this morning with hard passages where our eyes need to turn. So help us as we sing and help us as we respond. If it means coming to this altar and praying at these steps or if it means just praying in the pew or if it means talking to me, whatever it needs needs to be done, may you work in us this morning and help us as we sing, turn our eyes upon Jesus. May we do that, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.